You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. For those of you that may have been with us over the past few weeks that, or may not have been, we have been in the Getting in Shape series for the past few weeks. And we've been talking about the whole concept about what it means to be actively engaged in our faith. Faith, our, faith is not something that we just kind of walk through passively. Faith is something that we have to be intentional about and we have to be engaged in. Uh, our growth, our sanctification, our process of becoming more like Jesus Christ involves action upon our part. It requires a workout, if you will, on our part. And so thus the meaning of getting in shape. Over the past few weeks, we have talked about prayer and fasting. We've talked about silence and solitude, and we've talked about simplicity and service. This morning, we're going to talk about confession and worship. Now, when I talk about the word confession, I think there are many different things that come to mind here in this room because we have all come from various different backgrounds. For some of us, confession may be kind of just this exercise, this thing that we do by rote that's required. It's just kind of an act, and we don't necessarily fully understand the meaning behind it. For others, it may be kind of this act of guilt that we have to participate in each and every time to make us feel worse about ourselves, rather than actually realizing that it is a loving act that we engage in with a loving Father. And so today I want to unpack what confession is. Now our scripture has been, train yourselves to be godly for physical training is of some value, but godliness has come has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. 1 Timothy, 7, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Did you catch that? Has value for this present life and for the life to come. Meaning how we train ourselves today, how we grow in Christ, how we walk through the process of becoming more like Christ today has some impact for us in our eternal life. So your proactiveness today has eternal consequence. That there is some, there, there is, there is a measure of how we walk through our life today that will have, will play out in eternity. Now, I want to explain first of all the act of confession, what it means as far as the discipline of confession. First John one eight through nine says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sin is a discipline that we need to practice often because we sin often, and sin becomes an obstacle in our relationship with God. Now let me explain relationship with God and what that means. Because I think we all need to be on the same page if we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. What it means to be in a relationship with God. For some, and I'm not being dismissive of the sinner's prayer. That, is a, that, that has great impact for some people. However, you have to understand what the sinner's prayer means in order to, have, uh, to, to really fully realize what a relationship with God requires or requires. 
A sinner's prayer, by the way, is not in the Bible. It's something that we've kind of tried to summarize what the basic, uh, you know, basic tenets of faith are and what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Being in relationship with Jesus Christ is this, that you have acknowledged that he is Lord. You have acknowledged that you are a sinful being, that you have been separated from God because of your sin. And Christ came on this earth, an innocent God, an innocent lamb that sacrificed himself freely in order that his blood may pay the requirement for our sin. When you acknowledge that he is Lord, that he died for your sin, that you as a sinful being are going to turn away and repent of your sin, and you acknowledge that he is King of King and Lords and Lords, and you choose to follow him all the days of your life, meaning that you turn away from your present state, you turn away from your present sin, and you embrace him completely, freely, and holy without abandon when you do these things then therefore you will be adopted into the kingdom of God you will be called his son and daughter and then you will have eternal life because you will have been regenerated from death to life you are a new creature a new being you are a son and daughter of God that's what being in Jesus Christ means if you have not done that and you do not understand that, then you do not have a relationship with him. And I would be irresponsible to stand here and give you some sense of false confidence when your eternal security is at stake. Being in a relationship with God means that you follow him and you follow him alone. And you are committed to him all the days of your life without question, without abandon. So in that, we have accepted him, and for those of us that know him, we have relationship with him. And as you know, relationship requires maintenance. Relationship requires investment. It is a give and take in the context of relationship. So why do we need to confess our sins? If he died for our sins, and he has not just kind of covered up our sins, but it says that his blood has washed away our sins. If he has done those things, why do we need to go through the act of confession? Now, you've heard something that said that is very popular. It says that God has forgiven all of our past, present, and future sins. Well, there is truth in that. Well, 2 Peter 1.9 says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Jeremiah 31.33-34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Remember their sin means this. You know, some people say, oh, I forgot, and I, and I get that. God has forgotten their sins, but it's not as though he developed amnesia or he's like a big hard drive in the sky that just kind of blocks out certain parts of his memory. The fact is, is that he says that he will bring into account no more. He's not going to come up to you and go, oh, you remember that terrible thing that you did? I do. It's like, no, I'm not going to bring that into account. I'm not going to remember that. That has been covered, that has been, that has been washed away by the blood of Christ. It's as though it never existed. 
You're free from that. So for those of us that know him, God has forgiven all of our past sins. They were just wiped away when we acknowledged his sacrifice and who he is. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to ask for forgiveness. In the Gospels, Christ taught believers to ask the Father to forgive their sins. When the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Christ himself set forth the example saying that you are to pray for forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer does not have an expiration date. But there are some out there that would teach that it does, in a sense. There are some out there saying that you no longer have to confess your sins. There are some very popular teachers that are teaching that you do not have to confess your sins anymore because it's all covered under the grace. It's under a message of grace, but it is in error. It is wrong. It is misleading. We are required to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. The question remains, though, if he's forgiven us of all of our sins and wiped it away, why do we need to seek God's forgiveness if he's already justified us? If justification takes care of the past, present, and future, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why do we need to pray for forgiveness? Aren't you praying for something that's already yours? Now, the word justification... It's kind of a a big Christian word, but it means this, and it's a very simple way of explaining it. But it basically means it's just as though I never sinned. That when you are justified, you are given a position in the kingdom of God. It's as though that you had never sinned. God looks at you. He declares you righteous. He justifies you in that moment. He declares you a son and daughter of God. You have a position in his kingdom. You have a position in his family. You are adopted. You are made from death to life. You have been justified. That is what justification is. And it does take care of the sin. And God's sacrifice takes care of the sins of the past and the present and the future. His blood, listen to me, his blood covers washes away, excuse me, his blood washes away the sins of the past, his blood washes away the sins of the present, his blood washes away the sins of the future. Now that you've heard that, I want to go back to the saying that I said, God God, God forgives all the sins of the past, the present, and the future. That is true, and it is not true. God has forgiven all the sins of our past, but nowhere is there a scripture that he says he forgives the sins of our future. Now, before you start sending the emails, let me unpack that and explain what I mean. Remember, I said this. God's blood covers. God's blood washes away all the sins of our past, our present, and our future. God's forgiveness is readily available to all. It is there. God's forgiveness is available for the sins of the past, the present, and the future. However, it does not necessarily mean that God just automatically forgives the sins of our future. Scripture shows that he's forgiven the sins of our past, but there is action upon us from that point on in our relationship to be responsible for the sins of our future. And we have to be engaged in that. So why are we praying for forgiveness if we've already been forgiven? I don't understand that. Well, let me explain. There are two different types of forgiveness that we need to look at. The first is a judicial forgiveness. God grants this as a judge. 
It is forgiveness God purchased for you by Christ's atonement for your sin. That kind of forgiveness frees you from any threat of eternal condemnation. It is the forgiveness of justification. Such pardon is immediately complete and you'll never need to seek it again. Jesus paid for all your sins at the cross. That is judicial forgiveness. The other is parental forgiveness. God grants it to you as a father. He is grieved when his children sin. The forgiveness of justification takes care of the judicial guilt, but it does not nullify his fatherly displeasure over your sin. He chastens those whom he loves for their good, according to Hebrews 12. So this teaching that is out there that says this, and walk with me here, God is never displeased with you. He is always happy with you. He never, never is disappointed with you. That is not the truth. The truth of the matter is this. God will always look at you as the apple of his eye. He loves you. He treasures you. That will never change. Your position in him will never change. He will always adore you, value you, and care for you. But it doesn't mean that at times we can't grieve him and we don't disappoint him. Now, how many of you in this room are parents? Okay. So your children, you love them. They have a place in your family. Nothing's going to change that, right? They are your child. Your love for them will never change. There are times that it will feel like you want it to change. But your love for them will never change. They will always be your son or your daughter. However, they can disappoint you or displease you. Now, think about this. Your love is imperfect and it's flawed. And flesh can creep up in the midst of circumstances and situations. And we can have, you know, kind of clashes and things. We don't always express ourselves in the best way. And we wound each other and those things happen. Absolutely. There are those of us that will hear this. And this is what I want, want to speak to, that will hear this, and they will interpret it through the lens of their earthly parents and think that, oh, wow, but when I screwed up with my parents, it resulted in you know, severe consequence that they did not seem to love me, they did not seem to care for me, and they devalued me as a result of that. That is not the love of a perfect heavenly father. God will love you regardless, flat out, that does not change. The fact that he can be grieved or disappointment is a wonderful representation of the fact that you're in relationship with him. Think about it. If somebody offends you or hurts you, but you don't have relationship with them or you don't have necessarily any love for them, it's not really going to impact you as much as it does somebody that is close to you. It has a deep abiding relationship with you. It has, it has a more severe impact because that love is there. That care is there. 
That grieving is the result of going, I thought that you valued what I value. I thought that you cared about what I cared about. And when you did this, you demonstrated that you don't. And that grieves me because it actually impacts you. It hurts you. When your kids misbehave, it's not so much as though they violated your rules and the fact that you were ahead of the home. But what it is is that you see them engaging activities that you know that will be harmful to them, that will be harmful to their character, and that will impact their life from this point on if they don't turn around and change. That is what happens when the father says that he is grieved and that he is disappointed. Not that he devalues who you are, but he is grieved over the fact that you are selling yourself short and the fact that you are that your disobedience has a consequence. Judicial forgiveness deals with sin's penalty. Parental forgiveness deals with sin's consequences. Judicial forgiveness frees us from the condemnation of the righteous, omniscient judge whom we wronged. Parental forgiveness sets things right with a grieving and displeased but loving father. Judicial forgiveness provides an unshakable standing before the throne of divine judgment. Parental forgiveness deals with the state of our sanctification at any given moment and is dispensed from a throne of divine grace. The forgiveness that we seek is saying, God, I know that I sinned. I know that I wronged you. I know that I went against something that you value. And I freely admit that I did this and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that has had an impact on our relationship. Think about it. For those of you that are parents and such, when your child does something wrong, what if they were to come in and they were to wreck the car due to some uh, activity on their behalf that showed irresponsibility? Not talking about an accident that happens to everyone, but talking about the fact that they were texting when they were driving or they were doing something that you told them explicitly not to. You don't want them texting when they're driving simply because you want to play a power chip. You know that they could get killed on the road because they're not paying attention. And so they do that and they, uh, they wreck the car. And they come in and they notify you, I wrecked the car, sorry, I wrecked the car, Dad. But there's no apology there. You're going to forgive them. But yet, there's something going on there, the fact going, but you need to acknowledge that what you did was wrong. Because if they don't, then they're demonstrating they don't understand what they did, and if they don't understand what they did, then the p- potential for them doing it again is just that much greater, and it means that they don't really understand the danger of what they've done, and therefore they're putting themselves at risk. And the fact that they got out alive without any seeming consequence only increases their false confidence. It's kind of that same principle that when we don't confess, when we don't acknowledge that, that we kind of build ourselves up into false confidence that we can continue on and on and on and on again without any sense of consequences. Unconfessed sin can also have physical consequences. Scripture says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For all day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Psalm 32, 4 through 5. 
But there are those of us that have unconfessed sin in our life, and it can actually have physical consequence. Now, this, is, this has been medically demonstrated that when people carry unforgiveness, they carry various things in their life that, uh, you know, breed bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and anger, and they have these unconfessed things within their life. It can actually have physical consequences on us. It's documented. I remember a number of years ago in a church, <clears throat> there was a man in our church who was just flat out rebellious. He was uh, divisive. He continued to cause problems, arrogant, prideful, and just served as a point of contention and divisiveness within our congregation for years. And we dealt with it as we needed to deal with it, trying to demonstrate grace, but also show a level of going, no, you cannot do this to our body. But it kept on and on and on. And then, interestingly enough, he began to have some health problems. And it involved his heart. Went to the doctor and discovered that his heart actually began to calcify. There was an that his heart was beginning to actually harden physically, which was very symptomatic of his spiritual condition that it began to have a physical consequence on him. And we all just went, wow. The consequences of sin can be severe. And God, in his loving way, will do whatever is necessary to sometimes get our attention. Because he loves us and cares for us that, that much. Because what we do on this earth today will have eternal consequence. St. Alphonsus Liguori says, For a good confession, three things are necessary. An examination of conscience, sorrow, and a determination to avoid sin. An examination of conscience is when we are inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal areas in our lives that need the grace and forgiveness of God. That we say, God, I have blind spots. There are areas that I'm not aware of. Holy Spirit, I give you free reign to look through me, to look into my heart, and reveal things to me that are sinful, attitudes that are sinful, and that there are sins that I need to confess in order that we may have free, uninhibited relationship with each other. We confess those things, that we ask God to reveal those things within our heart, that we have sorrow, that we're expressing deep regret having offended the heart of God. Think about it, if, if your spouse does something to greatly offend you, but they just come up like stone and go, yeah, I'm sorry, that was wrong. With no sense of remorse or regret, are you going to question the authenticity of that apology? We should understand, there should be going, God, help me to see how this has impacted you. Help me to see how I have violated you. And... As a result, if we are able to see that, then there should be an emotional response to us of going, wow, I am grieved over how I hurt God and hurt my family or hurt my friend or hurt those others around me as a result of my actions. There should be a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow that brings condemnation saying that you are a bad, terrible, wretched person. 
but a godly sorrow that says, I have fallen short, which is the definition of sin, by the way. I have fallen short of that of which God believes in me and knows that I can do better. Determination to avoid sin. We are asking God to give us a desire for holy living and a hatred for unholy living. That it's not just enough to confess sin and such, but we are actually saying, God, I turn away. I am not going to do that anymore. And then, Father, I know that in myself I don't have the strength in my own flesh. But, Holy Spirit, I am asking for your empowering grace to help me to not engage in that anymore. Bring it to my mind the moment that my flesh wants to go there. Help me. And when I stumble and fall, lovingly show me so that I may continue to grow in my relationship with you and become more like Christ. So as we confess and as we grow and we become unhindered and uninhibited, then we are able to embrace the discipline of worship even more freely. To worship God is to ascribe the proper worth to God. It is the action of coming humbly before a God and giving honor, praise, and adoration. William Temple says, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. That we are able to fully understand and embrace the beauty of who God is. When we don't have that thing between us, we're able to see him more freely and clearly without false perception and without lie. But we're able to see him within the truth. We are transformed through our worship. Worship is the means to seek, to focus on, and to respond to God. Worship is more than an event in which we participate, but the way we live our lives as we seek God and honor Him in every area of our life. That everything we do is an act of worship. You know that when you come into this service, that first of all, everything, our lives should be an expression of worship in everything that we do. But when you come into this service, there is not one aspect of this service that's more important than the other. And some of us seem to think that there is. That from the moment that the first drumbeat starts and the first song begins, we have engaged congregationally in an expression of worship. And when you're saying, uh, that's not important to me, then you're just kind of seeming going, well, this expression of worship is more important than the other. And God says, no, it is all equally important. That we are, we're not, you know, you won't hear me say that. And now we're going to worship when referring to music. Going, no, we're going to worship through song now. Then we worship through the announcements. And if you don't think announcements are an act of worship, it's the staff of this church has gotten together and determined that these are the things that we want you to hear because we believe that if you do engage in these activities, we're giving you opportunity to exercise your gift of service and to also to continue to grow in your faith as well as you engage in study, as you engage in groups, activity, as you engage in community with each other. We believe that is important because that is an act of worship. Being engaged in a group is an act of worship. Then we, act, we worship through our finances by giving tithes and offerings and then alms, those things in which we do secret for the poor and less fortunate. Then we worship through the teaching. 
as we unpack the word, we study the word, and we discover more about God and his character through our application of the word. And then we come back again and worship through song, and then we worship in prayer. Everything we do in this service on Sunday mornings and Monday nights is an act of worship. Worship is the avenue through which we discover and we live out our destiny, purpose, and potential. Through the disciplines of confession and worship, we position ourselves before God in such a way that the Holy Spirit refines, reforms, and restores our lives. I know some of you are more musically inclined than others, and that's fine. Some of you, when you get in the car, you prefer to turn on talk radio than music. Music is just not something that's really part of your life. And that's fine. We're all wired differently. I'm not saying that you have to come, become this music aficionado, uh, so to speak, you know, in order to actually worship God. But there also can't be a resentment toward it as well. Because God values worship. God values song. It was part of his original creation. Song was there from the very beginning. Song attended to God's creation of the world, according to Job 38. Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Song was there from the very beginning. Song has great power. Worship has great power. So that power is unleashed when we come together and we worship. It has the power to confront barrenness. And Isaiah 54.1 says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her, her who is married, says the Lord. Not only will God confront physical barrenness, but also the barren situations in which we have not seen his power manifest. When you engage in the act of worship, you have the power to unleash the power of heaven and to break through barriers and to release barrenness or to, to confront barrenness within your life. That is the power of worship and song. Barrenness can involve people who have, we've been longing to see saved, those who have various addictions, Barrenness can involve aspirations or dreams that have been yet to be fulfilled. God will call you to new life through his song. Worship has the power to bring new life into our situation. It gives us power for victory. You know that as in Second Chronicles it shows that, that a choir went before Jehoshaphat's army singing the release power that God gave them to bring victory against their enemies. God said, I'm gonna, you need to put a choir in front of your army. That's going to bring release for the situation that I've called you to. That's going to bring breakthrough to the situation that I've called you to. That as we engage in that corporately, you're unifying your hearts. You're unifying the Holy, you're unifying in the spirit, the body of Christ to unleash the kingdom of God, to unleash the power of God within your life. And it has the power to restore and release from bondage. For Joel 2.25 says, I will restore you the years and the swarming locusts has eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts and the chewing locusts. 
When we call upon the power of God through song, we will not be abandoned and not be put to shame. He will bring restoration to the lost and lonely years. Psalm 32, 7 says, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. That there is power in the song. And finally, Paul and Silas said, that we are told that they were freed from prison after praying and singing hymns to God. That they engaged in singing in hymns in the midst of their circumstance, in the midst of their trial, and therefore the shackles fell off and the gates opened as a result of that. That there is power through worship when we embrace it and when we engage in it. And I believe God wants to do that for some of us this morning that had been in situations of barrenness, that had been in situations of bondage, that had been looking for release, that had been looking for freedom, that God wants to bring that into your life, but it it involves you stepping up, being proactive in your own freedom and engaging that which He has already provided, which is that worship, that act through song and through confession. And so we're going to do that this morning. That today we're going to have a time corporately where we confess. That doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to confess individually, but we're going to confess corporately because there's something dynamic that happens when we unify together as one in an act, in a discipline, in, in a confession to which we see things released within our body corporately and individually. And then out of that, immediately, we're going to come into a time of worship. And we're going to contend, and we're going to believe, and we're going to embrace that which God has for us. And we're going to believe that there will be breakthrough this morning. Amen? So I want us to stand this morning, and we're going to have this up on the screens, and we're going to engage in this together. And then after it's over, I do not want you to disengage, but I want you to lean in and lean forward into an act and an expression of worship which I believe God wants to bring transformation this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. Through the provision of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. We also confess our great need of you. We confess that our knowledge, our talent, and our experience is insufficient for the challenges we face. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to live a life that brings honor to you. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.